The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. John, I'm here at Christopher Columbus Park in Newark where this afternoon violence broke out briefly between Native American demonstrators and members of a coalition of 18 various Italian American pride organizations. Get out of here! This is our day! You hear that? He's brought our people to his door! I don't know what you're so hot about. They discriminate against all Italians as a group when they disallow Columbus. Oh, will you f stop? Group. Group. Whatever the f happened to Gary Cooper? That's what I'd like to know. He died. Oh, you mean because he fought the Sioux and all those Westerns? Oh, f that. Gary Cooper. Oh, there was an American. A strong, silent type. He did what he had to do. He faced down the Miller gang when none of those other assholes in town would lift a finger to help him. Now, did he complain? Did he say, oh, I come from this poor Texas Irish illiterate fucking background or whatever the f so leave me the f out of it because my people got fucked over? T, not for nothing. But you're getting a little confused here. A, that was the movies. Now, what the f difference does that make? Columbus was so long ago, he might as well have been a fucking movie. Images, you said. I don't know, if he was a metagon around nowadays, he'd, he'd be a member of some victim's group. The fundamentalist Christians, the abused cowboys, the gays, whatever the f He was gay, Gary Cooper? No! Are you listening to me? Let me ask you a question. All the good things you got in your life, did they come to you because you're calibrates? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is no. You got a smart kid at Lackawanna College. You got a wife who's a piece of ass, at least she was when you married her. You own one of the most profitable, topless bars in North Jersey. Now, did you get all this because you're Italian? No, you got it because you're you, because you're smart, because you're whatever the fuck. What the fuck is our self-esteem? I mean, that doesn't come from, from Columbus or the Godfather or Chef Boyardee. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 18th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion. That's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be out of the mouths of criminals and thieves can sometimes pour truths seldom heard in the public forum of discussion. Today's opener from an episode of The Sopranos may well capture the theme of our discussion today, the cultural war that has increasingly enveloped not just America, but the entire Western world. We'll begin our conversation with Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science, Salim Mansour, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Write on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Write's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Salim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. When we earlier talked about the focus of today's discussion, you made a compelling observation that politics and economics run downstream, not upstream, against the flow of culture and the inherent cultural values 
of a given people or a nation. And you suggested that many of the events found at the top of today's news cycles represent an attack on Western civilization, and that events like NAFTA negotiations and the Kavanaugh controversy exposed that cultural war. Am I summarizing your basic premise there fairly correctly? More or less, yes, Bob. That's, that's a pretty good summary. Um, the, the main idea or the main argument that I was presenting is um, economics and politics are aspects of the larger frame, which is culture. And more and more over the past few decades, this aspect has become prominent. When it was not prominent, we didn't pay too much attention to culture. We simply talked about economic issue in economic terms, political issue in political terms, because we had sensed, we knew, we felt that there was a wide consensus among all of us as you spoke about each individual issue. But I think what has happened and what has become visible, pretty much, I would say, in the past decade, but the 2016 election was definitely spot on on this matter, as was the referendum in Britain with Brexit, that culture has become, in a sense, the predominant issue of our time. Well, you were, you were mentioning, too, that if an ideal like freedom and individual rights and capitalism isn't already ingrained in a given culture, then political or economic efforts to establish that kind of freedom and capitalism will almost be doomed to failure. We've seen examples of this where we're trying to establish, say, democracy in some of the uh, Mideast countries where they do not have that cultural ingrain, the, the, the sense of individuality, of purpose. It's, it's, a, it's a huge collective. I think that begs a question. If that's the case, then what would be the process, quote-unquote, of establishing a culture before you can enshrine individualism and capitalism in it? Or do you try to do it the other way around and change the culture? Like, it seems to be a symbiotic back-and-forth push-and-pull. Am I? Cause it seems to be a tough question to ask if you're trying to say that the culture has to develop first. Then you wonder, well, how did that culture ever develop into individualism in the first place? Well... Let us pause and ask ourselves what we mean by culture before we okay, can proceed that's a good, good forward. Good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> Cultural anthropologists will point out that culture is the sum total of human activity uh, uh, by which we as individuals relate to each other in a society. A culture has many dimensions. Uh, when we are speaking of culture, we are talking not only about economic system or a political system that is a constitutional form of government. We're talking about art, we're talking about literature, we're talking about music, we're talking about religion, most importantly, that is the worldview. Uh, and we are talking about how these things all came together in a particular society and formed an organic whole within which we as individuals live and work and move along and get along. So that is the overarching idea of culture, you know. And cultures differ in that sense, historically. So if we talk about the West as a civilization, as an entity, and the sum total of Western civilization reflected 
in the philosophy, in the religion, in the art, music, mythology, symbols by which people live, then, you know, we are taking and looking at a vast sweep of time. But in terms of the modern world, we are at least going as far back as the Renaissance and the Enlightenment in the mm -hmm. making of the West. So if you talk about the idea of freedom as individual rights, this is an idea that evolved over time. It was not something that happened overnight. It was not something that you put a key into it and ignited the startup switch. It happened. We can go back all the way to Magna Carta. Well, it's funny you say that because you're, you, t you use the term organic, this organic. Yes. Um, yes. That's a term that Robert and I have used in the past in comparing uh, Britain's monarchy to the American uh, Republic as a constitution when it was established because the Brit British system sort of evolved as an organic thing as the uh, you know and, and the royal families were the symbols and the representatives of that what became a constitutional monarchy rather than an absolute one and that was a slow process is that the kind of thing you're talking about well i mean if you if you want to put the british monarchy as an example well, just of an monarchy, organic of an organic um, well evolution well it, political. It, it, monarchy is, is part of human history mm -hmm. it is as old as the ancient pharaohs right. you know and i i consider it a natural it nothing, thing yeah, yeah it is nothing it is nothing unique or exceptional to britain but if you want to talk about what is exceptional to Britain in the making of the modern West, then you don't begin with the Arthurian legend, you know. Uh, you begin somewhere with Magna Carta, right. and, and you move forward in time. And so you come to Renaissance, you come to the making of the Church of England, you come to the various struggles that took place, whether the Glorious Revolution, the decapitation of Charles I uh, that happened before the French Revolution. Then you move on and then you look at the slow evolving nature of the British parliamentary system and with it the various reforms that took place through the 17th, 18th and 19th century till we come. So it is a process. Yes, it's organic and it's a long process. On the other hand, American history, that is the modern American history, America is the child of enlightenment. America is the product of what came to define the modern West. I believe it was Margaret Thatcher who said Europe was built on history. The United States was built on philosophy. I think that's apt. I think that is pretty much true. Pretty and Ayn much Rand added uh, that the United States was the first morally created country, like based on a moral principle. Yes. And, and, and that, and that, that what, what you talk about moral or theological or the larger, the larger philosophical view of man yeah. as embedded in the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. and in the American Constitution is a product of that struggle in philosophical term that begins with Reformation and Renaissance uh, is highlighted by the philosophy surrounding Enlightenment. In the famous chord the moral code, you might say, or the philosophical code, the thread of American uh, uh, revolution is the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. You know, uh, every every man, every individual is endowed by the Creator to to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. These are all ideas that people like John Milton, or in Shakespeare. Uh, or Montesquieu and Montaigne were writing and talking about in the making of the modern Europe, modern West, 
of which United States and then the French Revolution for the European are the two iconic examples or embodiments of that historical process. So anyhow, this can be a very long uh, discussion, uh, philosophical discussion of culture. The point that I was making, and I think we are more and more now aware of it, I mean, Huntington's famous book that came out soon after the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, The Clash of Civilization, is about where the world is, or what the world was headed, we were becoming much more aware of it, was that as, as the world has shrunk in time and space as a result of the communication revolution and transportation revolution, what we ironically, paradoxically then note is in the shrinking of the world is the dynamics of culture that divides us, the Chinese culture, the Indian culture, the Islamic culture, the Africans, you know, the Europeans, and so on and so forth. Each civilization has its worldview. Now, politics and economics, we are talking about it in a discrete term, but the idea of a modern economic system based upon free market, competition. These are ideas that came about within a culture that had already, in some sense, come together. Adam Smith did not simply throw these ideas out into the world. 1776, the year of the American Revolution, in some void or abstraction. No, that was the Europe that was emerging. That was the Western world that was emerging within which the idea of capitalism, property rights, individuals, you know, were understood. So Adam Smith's book, which is the textbook of modern economics, uh, Wealth of Nation, is a moral philosophy, you see? So that's what, I, what, what is meant by that. Economics is downstream of culture. Although, now, although Adam Smith's observation was largely that when people act in their own self-interest, that the, 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 the general public benefits. The invisible hand. The invisible hand, which is a little bit different than saying that you have a right to act in your own interest. That's more of the moral uh, basis of even that statement. I think you can always go one step lower. But I've always wondered if the United States was an anomaly in this process because of its initial distance from the pre-established cultures of Europe, literally the distance, so that you could get away from all of that entrenched, determined culture that would take so long to change otherwise. It's almost like they got a fresh start because they were on a new land. and. Well, well, do you think we'd have the freedom we had today if, if there was no North American continent separate from the rest of the mass of land on planet Earth? Because it seems like the rest of the world has not developed in the way the United States was able to, or North well, America. Well, not the uh, uh, rest of the world, it is uh, the rest of the West, I mean, uh, has not evolved and developed in the manner in which the United States right. developed. And that's why... Precisely my point. They're, they're still on continental Europe. This is in part the whole issue of American exceptionalism. America was not, in a, that sense, burdened with the millennial history that Europe was burdened with at the point where Europe breaks out in the making of the modern world. And I, again, I'm using the term, you mm -hmm, know, sure. Reformation, Renaissance, Enlightenment. These are historic periods, you know, and this is about 14th, 15th century. America was not burdened with that. In fact, the Pilgrim Fathers were running away, were escaping 
from all the burdensome reality of Europe, you know, exactly. which, which ultimately culminated in the French Revolution, which was a destruction from the point of view of the French Revolution, destruction of the ancient regime. And what it represented, the church, the aristocracy, the landed interests, and it turned extremely violent. That was not the case with America. America happened in a different way. There was violence, but it happened in a different way. And what America embodied was not, you know, trying to write off the ancient regime because there was no ancient regime. Exactly. You see. So, yes, but the point about Adam Smith as, again, an iconic example. I mean, his book, his writing, his thoughts that emerges, it emerges within the context and the flow of history that is different as we can sit now and look back in retrospect than, for instance, the history of Russia. I mean, Peter the Great was a man who tried to westernize Russia, who wanted to open up Russia, you know. That was 18th century, early, uh, early 1700s. But the Russian history has been a history of authoritarian rule, right. of serfdom. And so, whether it was Peter the Great, whether it was Catherine the Great, whether it was 19th century Russia leading into the Bolshevik Revolution, 20th century Russia, and now post-Bolshevik, post-communist Russia, under Putin, there is that thread and the frame of Russian history, which is authoritarian. In other words, it is collectivist. Right. I remember watching an interview with Putin where he explicitly said exactly that, that the United States is based on individualism. We here in Russia are collectivists, and that's based on our history. And his policies come from that, and he was very explicit about it. Right. So there are different history, which mean different culture. The Chinese have their own. India has its own, and so on and so forth. So going back to Bob's question, how do we deal with culture? You cannot deal with culture. Culture evolves over time. Well, the way you deal with culture, and, in my estimation, is to be part of it. one recognizes it. Well, it's interesting. I have this article from Breitbart, and it concludes with, Culture matters. Withdrawing from it is no answer. If you want to change the future of the country, you need to engage the culture and not just expect the kinds of citizens who vote for your values can be summoned exactly. from the Exactly. You have to engage <laughs> the culture. You right. have to be part of it if you want to change it. And I, I would expand a bit about what Salim was saying by saying that culture is not simply the sum total of all actions. I think we're talking about ideas. Culture is ideas, whether it's literature, movies, television, uh, theater, it doesn't matter what, that, those are expressions of ideas. And it's, uh, ideas are basically philosophy. So when we talk about Western culture in this context of politics, we're talking about ideas, we're talking about philosophy. And I think that should be the context upon which we proceed the discussion. My first guest is a, a good friend, I still think. Uh, he was rooting for me on the monologue. He says, I'm really rooting to see how they're going to be. Uh, he's got one of the better shows on television this year, as his first show was uh, some years ago. The series is called New Heart. Clever title dreamed up by the people. At <laughs> Bob Newhart. I always assumed you were Irish. People magazine had an article recently. Said you were 
One quarter German? Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm three quarters Irish, one quarter German. I didn't know that. Which makes me, I have the German name. During the war, we, we called ourselves Alsatians. <laughs> Alsatians? <laughs> but, the Alsatian family. Yeah, but we, we were German. Of we course were it is. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of that. And, uh, but I'm actually three quarters Irish, which makes me a very meticulous drunk. <laughs> Germans, see, German, I don't know of any German comedians because Germ, German people, most, a lot of German people do not have a sense of humor. You know, they're not known for... I think for, that's probably basically yeah, true, yeah. yeah. They're very literal people. Right. They're, um, someone once said that more funny things are said at a cocktail party in Paris than in the entire year in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> they're, but they're very literal, you know, and... They don't, uh, they don't understand Americans, because we're non-literal. We're right. like, a German would say, why, why would you call this man curly? He has no hair at all. <laughs> why would you call someone curly who has no hair? This doesn't make sense. It's not funny, then. And tiny is at least 350 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dick Cavett was telling me he appeared on a German television show once, and it was horrendous, because he would try to say something amusing, and then the, the guy in Germany would say, and so forth, and the people just sat there. And, and it, because it was probably some play on words or something, it meant absolutely nothing. Well, they even when, like, the Volkswagen, you, I got the feeling... When they made it, you know, they say, this is one of the finest cars, it's a very economical car. And you say, well, what are the little holes in the, in the side for? That's, that's ventilation. That's for ventilation. You might put a machine gun in there. Of a, you've never played in Germany, have you? No, I would have no reason to. I mean, you see, no, that's true. <laughs> but singers, you see, can go and sing all they over the world, anywhere. even yeah. if they don't understand it and enjoy the music. But I would think trying to entertain in a, another country where they didn't really know you would be very difficult. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've. How about England? You work England, haven't you? Yeah, but they speak English. <laughs> well, I'm aware of that, but the point you were trying to make was going to a foreign country uh, where they would speak. I think, I think the point you were trying no, to make... No, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> England is still a foreign country. Yes. Although they do speak English. That's right. Of course. Right. Now, the point is... <laughs> The, the cultural things in England, oh, oh, I uh, certain uh, speech patterns, rhythms, and so forth, um, are different there. True. Even though it is a foreign country. It is. Uh, you could refer, uh, refer to, I guess, somebody from England as a foreigner. Sure. Sure. <laughs> have, you ever, uh, have you ever worked in England? No. Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Yes. Now, my next question is, because uh, they didn't give me this job because I don't know how to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> you can audition. see why so many guys have dropped along the way. That's right. They don't know how to ask questions in any kind of sequence incisive. at all. Uh, incisive, yeah. deep, penetrating, and uh, that's an audition that you have for this. Mm -hmm. uh, so my next logical question would be, how did you do there? Uh, very well. <laughs> but, I mean, even if I didn't do very well, I'm not going to say I, I didn't do it. <laughs> why would you want to blab that around? You know? That's right. Uh, 
I'll tell you where I didn't, I didn't do well. Where is that? Uh, in uh, Australia. I did very poorly in well, Australia. Well, now they speak English there also, don't yes. they? Yes, they do. That's another of what we call the English-speaking countries. countries. <laughs> We're talking about um, ideas, uh, call them culture, if you will, cultural ideas, cultural norms, philosophies, and I think it all came to a head, and it's very uh, a defining moment with the uh, nomination hearings of, of Justice uh, or Judge Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, because at that time, what you saw was a clash of cultures, if you will, a clash of ideas and philosophies between those people who see the rule of law as being the purpose of a government and those people who would like to see it destroyed. We saw the difference between nationalists, people who believe in the American ideal of, of uh, individualism and uh, the greatness of that nation, and the international socialists on, uh, on the democratic side. We saw civility on the part of uh, those supporting Brett Kavanaugh, and we saw um, anarchy and, and protest and incivil behavior and language on the part of the international socialists, uh, uh, sus- you know, sustained by a George Soros Nazi-sympathizing uh, globalist. So there's the clash of cultures. And unfortunately, Salim, what I was thinking of when you were talking about all of the different nations in the world all possessing these different cultures and the online, um, the, the method of, that we now talk about uh, these ideas being uh, the internet and uh, massive transportation between countries, is that the idea of the United States being... Um, an exemplar to the rest of us as far as individualism goes, we'll lose the ultimate battle because there's simply more of the international socialism than there are Americans or Canadians or Westerners who believe in individualism. What do you think about that? We're going to be swamped by uh, the left and lose the cultural war. Well, your question is very, very loaded uh, because there's so many. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> there is so Be many careful aspects how you answer. that Give you me the answer to life, please. You know. <laughs> um, well, one thing is that what we witnessed over the past uh, couple of months that then culminated finally with the swearing in of uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh as the Justice Brett Kavanaugh of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the immensity of the pushback or the attempt to push back by the Democrat and their various groups around the country breaking out in violence. I mean, the, the, the iconic picture was these women trying to, and men trying to break down the gate or the doorway to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know. And, and, and what does all the, of that represent? So that's one set of questions. In that, one of the things that gelled together uh, in the argument stopped. was uh, the, the presumption of innocence, which is at the bedrock principle of rule of law. Well, that's you, only after Christine Blasey Ford entered the equation. All of these protests and that happened before she was even mentioned. And they're continuing now, L- even, L- as, even after the appointment. Nothing Linda Sarsour changed. standing up in the, in the confirmation room, uh, yelling and shouting and having to be dragged out. All of that is true. That's before so, Blasey so Ford. So all of that is true. And so we, we have to back up. Why was the intensity grew over a period of this nomination that be, was that happened uh, after the July 4th Independence Day and the president... Trump nominated 
Judge Brett Kavanaugh in the first week of July for the July Supreme 9th, Court. Yes. And all of this now culminated till he was sworn in in beginning of October. So there's there's a lot of thing in there. So I just wanted to say it was a very loaded question. Uh, well, on the one question side, is really, are we uh, losing yeah, the battle? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I was saying in the first part of the discussion, culture is the sum total of who we are as individual and as people. We are not simply individuals in the world, isolated atoms. We are not uh, a Robinson Crusoe. Even Robinson Crusoe had a man Friday. So we are, and as we say, we, we are part of a family of people. As individuals, we are connected with others. That's what brings the society together. So what we can say that, you know, in a broad term, there are cultures which are pre-modern, then modern, and now some people are talking about postmodern yeah. culture. Pre-modern culture, you might say, of a society predominantly where the population of that society is tied to the land, agriculture, you know, and work the land. Modern culture begins with the breakdown of that agricultural pattern of existence to industrialization. And Marx was the guy who reflected on it, you know, when industrialization was spreading across Europe. And postmodern culture is that, you know, more and more people are no longer tied either to industry or agriculture, but gone into what we might call the information age, you know technology that is different and therefore you know uh, we are dealing with a whole different pattern of existence symbols and meaning which we are confronting and trying to make sense of but the other way to talk about culture on the one side the individual is part of the group the entity the collective and the individual is subject to the will of the collective you know, so those are authoritarian culture. And you might say predominantly world history has been shaped by authoritarian cultures, you know. Europe was once authoritarian. And then there is America as the iconic child of enlightenment, that the society is wholesome, organic, and yet the individual is no longer subject to the will of the collective. The culture is one in which there is the evolution of the society for the self-liberation of the individual, the man or the woman. I think that is where America is a mirror to the rest of the world, or what is a society where an individual thrives. And I think what is happening in America is that culture is now under siege, not by outside forces, but by forces within the American society. That's where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are at war with each other. That's the culture war. The Democratic Party more and more represents the tribalism of American society, the collectivity of American society, where the individual will be bent to the needs of the collective, whatever the collective is, that is, the identity politics, you see, the group identity. Mm -hmm. it, its history has always been that. I mean, I, I think what has happened is they've been winning so many of the battles and wars that now it's become so visible to the rest of us, we can't ignore it anymore. You go back and you look at the Democratic Party, it's the party of the Ku Klux Klan, of all these... Correct. You know, collective things that we would regard as evil today, practically. And yet that party is still 
zooming ahead. They're trying to rewrite history. Columbus Day, for example, is being right. totally turned into some kind of... Uh, Indigenous people's day. Yes, it's horrible. And, and, and speaking of which, now that you mention that, that's also a cultural war within North America where, and I see Trudeau doing this in grand style, especially with all these indigenous rights, and we're going to have this new indigenous holiday. And what I see them doing is literally creating a nation within a nation. And the two can't exist in the same jurisdiction. If you're going to have all these separate rights for one group, however you call them, then they're not the same people as the rest of the people because they don't have the same set of laws and it's just permeating. It's It's interesting what you're saying, Bob, because what you're doing is you're speaking against the Breitbart comment that politics is downstream of culture. What you're suggesting is in politics, especially here today with Trudeau as the prime minister, ideas are being foisted upon us, are being forced upon us against the cultural will. Well, this is why I was saying, is, is the culture creating the politics, or is the politics creating the culture? Or are they both? I guess, I guess the answer is that it's, it's both and neither. Politics can both be downstream of culture, and politics can also be a reflection of culture. You know, and, and culture can probably be downstream of politics. If you get a demagogue into power who imposes his will upon the nation, then that nation's culture changes, doesn't it? You can think about the United States, the freedom that they enjoy in the Constitution and, and the Declaration of Independence was actually foisted upon the American people by a minority. There was more Americans, I understand, who fought on the side of the British than did on the side of the revolutionaries. And yet, here we have a constitution, a declaration of independence, which now half of Americans revere as part of their culture. So, I don't know, it sounds as if politics can precede culture, culture can precede politics. To to go to Salim's point, these people who wrote the constitution, who wrote the declaration of independence, did not do so in a vacuum. And of course, their culture was one of the Renaissance and post-enlightenment. So I don't know if it's a chicken and egg question. That's, it probably is. It's what I think it is. And, <laughs> it's not a chicken and egg question in the sense that you're making it out to be. America emerged as Europe emerged into the modern world with the concept of a people who declared themselves sovereign and will make the laws for themselves in, in, in a territory. So that's nation-state. The French Revolution was about France. You know, it was not about Britain. It was a revolution in France. The American Revolution was about the 13 colonies that then became a continental country. But it is America. It's the United States of America. And, And the Constitution was written for a people and voted upon and enacted and adopted by a people who came to share those values. There were divisions, of course. There was division between Catholic and Protestants. There was division between all the various denominations of the Protestant religion and Protestant faith. There was division between black and white, that is, the slaves and the slave owners. There was those division. But the overarching theme was there was a consensus, you see. The separation of church and state as a principle which is embodied in the First Amendment, was an argument that had emerged as part of the Enlightenment movement. 
you see. So a people came to hold the constitutional values, but they could be changed within the constitution, that is the amending principle, it could be changed, it could be fought over. The Civil War was fought over, but the Constitution was, let me put it in this way, the sacred text that define what is America and who is America. Holidays are a great time to riddle Americans with needless oppressive guilt, but the one that stands head and shoulders above the rest is Columbus Day. The day where progressives indoctrinate your children into believing Columbus to be Satan incarnate, the USA to be his evil spawn, and the Native Americans to be pacifists. And so now we have Indigenous Peoples Day, or as it would have been named 30 years ago, Aboriginals Day, or as it would have been named 10 or 15 years ago, Native Americans Day, or as it could be named tomorrow in Canada, First Nation Peoples Day. Feeling the urge to self-inflict grievous bodily harm yet? That's only natural because the whole charade has become an exercise in hating Western civilization, which is really just an exercise in hating yourself. First, as far as Columbus goes, the guy deserves some credit. Right? Flawed, to be sure. But he was the greatest navigator of his age, the first person to cross the Atlantic from the continent of Europe, and he did so without any maps and only three small ships. I'll bet that you probably believe Columbus and other European settlers to simply have committed mass genocide against Native Americans. Sorry, indigenous. But here's the truth. While there were many examples of brutal warfare between Europeans and Native Americans, neither side actually committed genocide. In fact, there was never an outright policy of Indian extermination. The Native Americans were mostly wiped out through infectious diseases that the settlers had inadvertently brought with them. Here's another thing I bet you've been made to believe, that many Native Americans, sorry American Indians, sorry I don't know what, take your pick, lived in harmony with the environment until Columbus arrived and European settlers destroyed the land with their evil technology. Truth, not only did the natives brutally take out people, but they took out entire forests and hunted species to extinction. Squatting Bear and his First Nation buddies weren't hopping into kayaks to block whaling ships, probably because they were too busy killing seals to waterproof their kayaks. You also probably believe that the Native American, sorry, two-spirited First Nation something or other culture was a beautiful, pantheistic one of peace. The truth is, not so much. When Columbus arrived, the islands were inhabited by two main tribes. The Arawaks, who were passive and friendly, and the Caribs, who were vicious cannibals. The Arawaks actually lived in fear of the Caribs for, you guessed it, the reasons being that they hunted them down to enslave them and eat them. Yes, eat them. Ironically, we get the name Caribbean Islands from those famous people eaters. The only way settlers were able to conquer this land was through the help of Native Americans who teamed up with them to settle the score with other tribes who were even bigger jerks than they were. It's not even to mention the populations in Central and South America famous for ritual human sacrifice. You think Cortez was able to command and conquer with only 500 or so conquistadors? Of course not. It took 50,000 screaming, angry allied natives who'd had it up to here with being tortured, enslaved, and forced to carry gold for the other native Aztecs. At some point, they decided to roll the dice and go with the guys sporting funny beards and metal hats. None of this is to say that the early settlers were perfect, or that they didn't carry out their fair share of pretty scummy stuff, but to use America's mistakes as the brush with which to paint the entirety of its history while completely ignoring the indigenous lifestyle of barbarism and borderline evil is inaccurate at best, dishonest at worst. There were plenty of bloody, horrendous battles between the Europeans and the Indians. Columbus is not the issue here, and never was. This whole Indigenous Peoples Day charade is about teaching your children to despise Western civilization and anybody who dare defend it. I'm Steven Crowder for Prager University.
Benditos señores y señores, and welcome to the glorious democracy of San Saludos. Each and every one of you is the personal guest of our benevolent and beloved leader, General Diablo Pajarito, commander of the armed forces, president of the Senate, chief justice of the Supreme Court, and finance minister. General Pajarito feels sure you will enjoy your stay in the friendly and prosperous country of San Saludos. Your return visa expired 30 minutes ago. Take this dog out and have him shot. Max, they're gonna shoot that old man. Don't be ridiculous, 99. This is a civilized country. First of all, he'll have a trial by a jury of his peers. The right of appeal. Transferal to a higher court. And if all else fails, a personal plea for clemency to General Pajarito. <laughs> of course, here, all that happens after the man is shot. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And, Salim, we were talking about uh, the whole cultural war, and I guess Kavanaugh became the focal point of that over the past certain, certainly month or so. Yes, uh, and let us pause and think about this. Was it Kavanaugh the issue, or was it, would it be just about anyone, anyone nominated by President Trump? And whoever he nominated would have led to uh, the sort of excess in demagoguery and violence and opposition that the Democrats mounted. I totally agree. It would have been uh, anyone. Yeah, it would I be agree. any man. And this has a long history. It goes all the way back to Robert Bork. Yes. And Clarence Thomas. But then the question is, why did it happen? I mean, what if it would be anyone, but why? The appointment by uh, President Trump of anyone, and in this instance, Brett Kavanaugh, meant that the Supreme Court was now finally tilting away from the hole that the Democratic Party had for the last 50 years. The whole Roe versus Wade issue became an issue for the Democratic Party that symbolizes the idea that what the Democrats cannot push through the Congress, that is the House and the Senate, as a legislative agenda, they can put it together and push it through the Supreme Court. But if they lose the Supreme Court majority, then they have lost the last bastion or institution of American government. American government, according to the Constitution, is a separation of power. There is the president, who is the executive head, He doesn't legislate. He's the commander-in-chief. Then there is the Congress, which is the legislature. They legislate. And then there is the judiciary, the Supreme Court, that sits and looks at whether the legislation is compatible with, consistent with, or breaks away from and undermines the Constitution as it stands. Okay, So three branches of government with three different sets of responsibility that makes an organic whole. In the last few years, the Democratic Party, with the election of Obama, began to lose the institutional power. In 2010, they lost the House. They had the president, the executive, but they lost the House. In 2014, they lost the Senate. In 2016, they lost the presidency. Okay? And now, with two appointments on the Supreme Court made by President Trump, who the Democrats have come to loathe, they lost the Supreme Court. 
That is why the fight was so hard to malign this man. And they would have maligned anybody, as they did with Clarence Thomas, you recall, as they did with Robert Bork, as you recall. They would have maligned anybody to bring about a situation where either the president would be forced to withdraw the name or they would lose the vote in the Senate in the role of the advice and consent. In this case, they overreached and they lost that battle. I think it was Trump who said thank you for all this uh, this nonsense that went, went on during the Kavanaugh hearings because they just handed them the wins they needed in November because people have realized how bad these Democrats are. And I, I have to think of some of the remarks about Christine Blasey Ford and the protests that went on there to remind people that the tactics of the left go back a long time and they involve mass murder. They involve world wars. So what is it to bring somebody into the hearings who would lie? So, so Robert, uh, what, what you're saying is very correct, so, but let's put it in theoretical principle then. You, you like philosophical principle. No so does. let's put it in. <laughs> what is the left? The left, as, as Marx, for instance, I mean, his, his famous Communist Manifesto begins, all of history is a class struggle. Class struggle, remember? Mm-hmm. It's a group. It is collective. Right. The left is always moved by this notion of collectivity, whether it is the class of workers, whether it is gender, whether it is the pigmentation of skin, whether it is religion, an ideology, whatever it is, it is the collective. And within the collective, there is no room for independent thinking of the individual, the assertion of the individual right. The conservative, on the other hand, or the right, on the other hand, as opposed to the left, stands for the principle that the ultimate minority is the individual. Right. You know, And an individual cannot be subject to be the means of somebody else's end. An individual is an end in himself or herself. So that's the classic battle. What President Trump represents as a man who's an entrepreneur, well, let's go back to Adam Smith, you know, is the individual who thrives by his own native intellect. So that's the individual. And I think what is happening is the clash of two ideas. Take the case. I mean, when Trump said, we are going to build a wall, that is, we reject the concept of open border. An open border means the pouring of people. There's no protection. It's like pouring of water into a glass of wine. You pour the people that is coming in from outside into your own nation, and then in time, you have no nation that is identifiable by any core value. On the other hand, the right says, that is the conservative says, yes, we do have a core identity. And that identity in the case of America is the value of the Constitution, of individual rights, of the rule of law, or the presumption of innocence, etc., etc., etc. You are in America, you become an American, you swear your oath on the Bible, on the flag, and you become an American. You know, it is not a matter of your skin color, it's not a matter of your name, it's not a matter of, you know, where you originate from. Once you are in America, you are an American. But an open border concept does away with that. 
uh, I think the Trump phenomena in America is very sharp and very pointed. The Democrats and the left sees that Trump is basically repudiating everything that the left stands for. Democrats really handled the Brett Kavanaugh vote, I think, with great aplomb, dignity, poise. Folks on the left really, you know, they, they really, I think, showed tremendous maturity when they realized that Brett Kavanaugh was actually going to be on the Supreme Court. And Democrats responded in their typically moderated and, I think, modulated fashion. It was really, it was really good to watch. It was good to see the country come together after such a rough time because Democrats did, I thought, just a great job. I mean, like here is, is what happened at the Supreme Court immediately as Kavanaugh was being confirmed inside. For those who can't actually see this, there are people who are legitimately standing there beating on the 13-ton bronze doors of the Supreme Court. My favorite is this lady who's trying to pry the door open. She, like, like Frodo trying to get into the mines of Moria. It's pretty, pretty astonishing stuff. Obviously, people really reacting well to all of this. We have an anti-Kavanaugh protester who started threatening people as well, so that was pretty solid. I'm sure that this fellow is, a, is an expert in the intricacies of Supreme Court jurisprudence based simply on the language that he's using. With regard to his political enemies, I'm sure that he knows the entire line of cases stretching prior to Griswold on the right to privacy, and he's just upset at how that line of cases could be curbed by the presence of Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Probably that's what's going on. Stephen Harper, the former Prime Minister of Canada, talks about the nation-state, and he, and he re refers to two groups of people, the somewheres and the anywheres. And the somewheres are the people who believe in the nation-state or hold to that, and the anywheres are the people who are opposed to that. I'm just quoting a couple of things here from some excerpts printed in the National Post. Quote, The nation-state, with all its flaws, is a concrete reality. The global community, quote-unquote, is little more than a concept. And he says, this is where I part company with the anywheres. Anywheres seem to believe they can pick from whatever national basket they like. You have to have some responsibility as a citizen to somewhere. <laughs> and if you do not understand that, then you will behave as if you have no responsibilities at all. Well, Hopper mm -hmm. is, I think, right on the money on this. The great issue that has come to the forefront in Europe and in the Americas is the issue between defending the nation state and those who are pushing the concept of open border and globalism. And we can see the result. We saw the result in 2016 in America with the winning of Donald Trump as president. He talked about building the wall to protect America. We can see the recent election in Quebec with CAQ, the coalition Avina Quebec, winning a majority government and sweeping the liberal out on the basis of protecting its culture, protecting its identity, no to multiculturalism, no to issues that means a dilution of what is Quebec French culture. And I think this is a phenomenon where more and more people will rally. But at the bottom line is they are defending their historical 
identity as a people, a definite people with a definite sense of who they are, what their value is. And they're open to people to come into their country so long the new arrivals adapt and adopt those values for themselves instead of imposing which, which you would think would be values the, that they bring yeah, in. Which you would think would be the reason that someone emigrates to a particular Precisely. country is to it, take advantage of that country's established <laughs> culture. Isn't that well, the whole it, idea? Things, things have yeah. changed since yeah. World War II. Prior to World War II, there was no real, essentially, uh, welfare state, and people migrated into the United States, Canada, and the other countries because of the freedom that they were afforded. They would work and become individuals within a greater collective of people who believed in individual freedom. After World War II and FDR, that changed. Our countries became socialist. We adopted the very thing the people fought the Nazis for. So we became socialist states. So what do you see now? You see people coming here in droves shopping for welfare. Not all of them. Some definitely love the, uh, the, the individual freedom we have here. And want to be part of it. But I would say a very large part of the immigration going on into Britain, into Germany, into Norway, Sweden, Canada, the United States, etc. is because we're socialists and we give them free stuff. That is one thread. That adoption of social welfare issues made it attractive in some ways for people to come and demand those things. But there's another very, very important cultural issue, which again was played out in Judge Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and hearing. Look, in the last 50 years, this is the period of Roe versus Wade, there has been an estimated 60 million abortion in America. If these had not happened, American population would be somewhere closer to 400 million people. However, at the same period of time has been the open border immigration. The open immigration has brought into America somewhere between 40 and 50 million immigrants from outside of America. That's interesting. That, that feeds into the socialist question as well, because socialist programs, need, it's, a, it's a Ponzi scheme. And the government is actually the first one to admit that, that we need a population base of young people to be able to pay for the social programs we give to our elderly. So this Ponzi scheme of socialism feeds into the question of immigration and, and, and you and I are going to disagree on the abortion question right off the bat. <laughs> but the immigration question, I think, is, is, is essential. We wouldn't have it if we wouldn't but have socialism. But look at the paradox. I mean, all that you're saying is, again, not questioned by any actuarial definition of what is a social welfare state and how it can be sustained. So that's not the issue. The paradox is that the American society engaged in killing its own babies. And so the void that was created in killing its own baby through legalizing abortion was then filled in, in part, by this open border of immigration. I, I wouldn't and, deny and, and, that, and, though. And, I wouldn't use those words. Well, you might not use it, but that's what it is. I mean, you know. You well, there was also birth control on its own without abortion that reduced the population yes. too, right? So the same same phenomenon occurred. This is the this is the challenge in Europe. You've had the fertility rate go down below sustainable requirement of a population. Of a socialist state. Of a population, any population. No, I, well, it's not a socialist state. 
two, two child one, a, couple, need, a couple yeah. was the sustainable rate. I mean, it was that always is, higher. Europe went into a negative birth rate with the development of new technology, particularly the pill, and then came the abortion. So on the one side, you have a society that basically is hollowing out its own population as a result of number of things. And on the other side is what you are arguing, which is quite correct. You need a population to sustain your social welfare scheme. So you see, Robert, you're mixing different arguments. I'm just pointing out the issue of total fertility rate. United States, as the most advanced society, has maintained its total fertility rate. Israel, as an advanced technological society, has a high fertility rate to survive and grow. Europe, on the other hand, Quebec, on the other hand, if the fertility rate continued declining as it has been without immigration, let's say there is no immigration, whether you have a social welfare state or not is besides the point. The fertility rate declines. Then, by simple statistics and the curve, that society will die out. That's simple as that. You, you cannot maintain a culture if the culture is, is as, as I gave you the analogy, you have a, a glass of wine and you start pouring water into it. So the, the population intake that comes from different cultures and don't assimilate into the culture of the nation that they're migrating to means that the culture of that nation will dissolve over time. And so the whole argument in, in terms of a nation state and a dem democratic society that, as is the United States of America, one set of people are determined to determine to check this process and building the wall is symbolic of that effort to check this process of open border and globalization. On the other hand, again, within the democratic process of voting is that group of people who insist that we need to maintain open borders whatever may be the cost. So there are two sets of issues that have come to play, uh, come to, you know, well, if, be... If we might wrap up with, uh, again, another quote from Stephen Harper right. and see if we all agree with this. And he suggests that the, that the big problem is, quote, it's a split between those whose economic interests are global and those whose interests are local. It is between those who lo whose lives cross borders and those who live within them. And he says that being pro-globalization should not entail abdicating loyalty or responsibility to our countries. Politics is not everything, but is essential. We need to ensure that we get our politics right. <laughs> when he's talking about loyalty to a country, I mean, if I, if I lived in Nigeria, I wouldn't necessarily have loyalty to that country. No, I, I think he's talking... Yeah, well, you're, but, but the point is, you are in the act of that moving, deciding that one country's better than, the, than another, right? Yes, and so, of course. And so what he's talking about is that allegiance to the country that you might live Absolutely in or agree. over. Absolutely okay, agree. If you move well, to a country, be loyal to it. And with that, we'll end the show this week. Thank you again, Salim, for joining us. And be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Yeah, Beatles are great John Lennon moved to America And we promised we weren't going to shoot him 
Imagine all the people. I can only imagine like 200 things at a time. Sharing all the world. Great, can I have that white grand piano that you shot the music video with and I'll give you my toy piano? Imagine there's no countries. Then why did you move to America and not Nigeria if it doesn't matter?